Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, my lovely guest is Nadezhda Taranchevsky, who also goes by Nadia. Nadia has a Master of Psychology and holds a Master Certified Coach credential by the International Coach Federation. She works as a coach, keynote speaker, and is the author of the book, Conscious You, Become the Hero of Your Own Story. She was trained and licensed by McKinsey & Company as a facilitator of transformation. As a skilled facilitator of group processes and a challenging team coach, Nadezhda's specialty lies in supporting CEOs and their teams who want to reinvent their organization as a conscious tribe, i.e. as a thriving community where people invest in inner work, understand big picture, live deep connections, and cultivate conscious rituals. To this end, her company, Conscious You, delivers blended learning programs focused on culture transformation through inner work and action learning across all levels of the organization. Their groundbreaking CU Money program is open to anyone who wants to start doing what they love with or without money. And in this conversation, we explore all sorts of things, but in the introduction, I'll just focus on two things that we primarily covered, money, work, and conscious tribes. Now, Nadia will explain this way more eloquently than I will here, but money work in its essence is an exploration of how we project our beliefs onto money. If you look at money as a blank canvas, we have all sorts of beliefs that we project onto it. We might think that those who have the most money are really evil. We might have or might come from a place of scarcity around money and think that we can only have safety and security with a certain level of money. And so money work is an exploration of all of this. And how can we become more conscious of our relationship with money so that it's not ruling our life and is more of a, a way that can support our life instead of the, the thing that we're constantly chasing. And in Conscious Tribes, Nadia explores how we can make inner work accessible to groups at scale. And so doing inner work by ourselves is really beneficial. And it's a great place to start and cultivating awareness of how we show up is, of course, a wonderful thing. But at a certain point, Nadia wanted to make this more scalable. And so she makes this work accessible for large groups and posits that if we aren't conscious about the way that we're relating to others, whether it's as a society or in a work setting or whatever groups that we are a part of, then all the inner work in the world isn't going to make the world the place that we actually want to live in. So Nadia was such a wonderful guest. I so admire her work and I highly recommend her book, Conscious You, as I already named earlier in the introduction. She really, she wouldn't say this herself, but I look at her as someone who fully understands the essence of human behavior and how we can all show up as the best version of ourselves. So let's settle in 
take a deep breath and enjoy what Nadia has for us today. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I've been so excited to have you on. And yeah, I'm a big fan of the work you do. I was a big fan of your book. And I wanted to start with, it's kind of the same way that I start with all of my guests. I ask what, what it was like at your dinner table growing up. But I wanted to unpack that question from the lens of the tale of the hot potato. So if you could briefly paint a picture of what it was like at your dinner table growing up and then explain a little bit about the tale of the hot potato. <laughs> okay, that will be a bit of a stretch for me to combine these two, but, but let, let me see where I land. So what, what I remember vividly is that my, my parents always had friends who played a big part in their lives. So there were a lot of dinners uh, with larger numbers of people around a table. And one of my most treasured memories is actually laying on my mom's lap um, and you know, sort of falling asleep towards the later part of the dinner, uh, but listening very intently to what was happening uh, above me and listening to the conversations the adults had. So that is one of those memories that that I think is very fond for me um, of, of dinner time. Um, and during times, so let me think if I can remember uh, something that feels relevant that was without guests. So, so yes, I guess one of the memories that I have that is sort of less happy is um, at my dad's dinner table because my parents divorced when I was seven. So I don't really have a lot of memories of my parents combined. It was sort of more a, a separate event kind of thing for me. And with my father, um, dinner time always meant that he would get served first by my stepmother and he always got the biggest piece of whatever was on the table. And, you know, even though I clearly as an eight or nine year old wouldn't have been able to eat the piece of meat that he was eating, the mere principle of this really pissed me off. And I remember <laughs> finding it so unfair, right, that that sort of that principle of why would he get the first and serving and the biggest piece like that was something that really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so now you need to help me combine that with the hot potato story. Yeah, well, it. My interpretation of the tale of the hot potato is that you you talk about how we we come into the world with maybe certain inherited uh, it, it doesn't need to be trauma, but we have beliefs that are carried generationally. And uh, yeah, the tale of the hot potato, as I understood it from your book, was you were born into a family that because of World War II and because you're you're half German, half Polish, I believe. You yeah, quarter Polish, quarter Russian, yeah. Got it. Okay. There were certain things that were indoctrinated into your life that you didn't necessarily have control over. And then eventually over time you realize I if I do enough work on myself, I have a choice of whether I need to believe this or not. And so at least in my mind, I was thinking, you know, maybe the dinner table and the tail of the hot potato could be interwoven in some way. But okay, it... no, I, I think I have an idea of how I could connect the two. So, in in a nutshell, the, the the way I would describe the whole hot potato idea is that the first step of transformation is sort of discovering that your family mattered, right, and that whatever experiences you had in that past. Um, 
is somehow relevant. And a lot for a lot of people, that is sort of big news when for the first time they realize, oh my God, my childhood actually had a massive influence on the person that I am today. So I would call that, that's the first step of discovering a hot potato. And a hot potato is basically an issue, a trauma, um, a secret that the generation before you hasn't dealt with. And so they hand it over to you as a hot potato, right? And then you, you sit there and you're the one juggling this, this hot potato, trying to not get burned. And so, for example, with the dinner situation, I suppose what I could link it to is um, given that my dad's side of the family, they were all immigrants. And my dad grew up um, still in extreme poverty in, in Germany. And I remember him telling me that he often went to bed hungry because they were dirt poor. Um, so there was a sense of scarcity. So I, I do think some of his behavior around the dinner table and also demanding that the first you know, piece of meat and the biggest piece of meat would go to him was connected to, um, to that upbringing, to that sense of scarcity. Um, so firstly, remembering that is it is a hot potato because I think he, he never fully resolved that in his life. Uh, much more today than, you know, when I was little, but when I was little, it was definitely very unconscious for him. So the sense of scarcity is something that I realized influenced me greatly. First step, discovering this hot potato. And then the second step is understanding as you continue with your personal development, that this doesn't necessarily have to matter for your life, that this story of scarcity, for example, in my family's life only matters in as far as I have it be meaningful, that there is actually an element of reinvention or choice at play, that there is my brain's ability, my body's ability to move into a different reality where scarcity doesn't have to be my story anymore. And that's the moment when I discovered I don't have to have all of these hot potatoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the scarcity, the, you know, the sense of I need to make sure that I'm nourished is something that was never really an issue in my life. And so making it one had everything to do with the hot potato that I inherited, but very little with my actual experience and my, my, my actual relationship with life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to, I want to put a pin in the modalities and the different tools that helped you uncover all of these different insights that you're talking about now. And I know that you majored or graduated with a degree in psychology from school. And so I'd be interested to hear what drew you to psychology and to backpedal a little bit into there. And from there, I would love to then move into all the different ways that you've come to these powerful realizations in your life and, and the work you do with your clients as well. Yeah. So as much as it is a bit of a, um, you know, cliche, I, I really do think I initially started studying psychology because I was overwhelmed with the number of hot potatoes that at that point I had already discovered through therapy and trying to come to terms with all of these patterns, with all of these experiences, with all of that unresolved trauma and assuming on some level uh, that psychology would help me to make sense of you know this whole mess but also then of course put me in a position where i could eventually help other people to sort through their own mess so the starting point was was a bit of a self-help impulse little did i know that at least in germany studying psychology had very little to do with that and the majority of my time i spent with classes like 
uh, you know, statistics, um, which, you know, obviously has nothing to do with personal development. So the, the reality of studying psychology and my fantasy were two very different things. Mm -hmm. And so from there, <laughs> it seems like studying psychology didn't provide the answers and the insights that you were looking for. So what did that must have been very frustrating? Like, what did you do from there? Where did you start to piece these different things together? And, and become the professional and maybe the, the noticer of your own experience, the, the person who is able to heal herself, like what were some different things you picked up along the way if psychology wasn't providing those answers for you? I, I would say it was still the, the field of psychology. So that impulse was, was probably correct. I just didn't quite understand at the time what getting a degree in psychology in, in Germany would really entail. Um, however, it was interesting enough for me to want to um, discover more. So I ended up searching in different places and I developed a bit into what I would today call being a truffle pig. So I, I do pride myself in finding yeah, great teachers, uh, great sages in whatever area of expertise they have, and, and also, in, also in modalities that I find particularly helpful in that field. So in the beginning, it was, you know, wandering around completely clueless and just listening to other people, uh, things that they had discovered, uh, following those people for a while, going through different modes of therapy until I was, you know, over time putting together my own tool set my yeah my, my my own tool set i think is probably a good way of describing it of of things and people that had actually made a difference in my life and you know so traditional talk therapy was amongst that and i i figured that can be helpful really depending on the practitioner but that was probably the main insight i had anyway i'm, I'm not a big believer in modalities per se i i'm actually quite irreverent when it comes to modalities because i you know, I'm very clear that those were invented by people. So I don't find anything particularly holy. And I've been known to just combine things as I see fit. But what I have become to really believe in is the level of depth that somebody, a practitioner has gone to within themselves. That is sort of the benchmark for how far and how deep they can take you. Yeah, so I've, you know, I, I have collected things that I believe in um, modalities that I think are particularly helpful, but ultimately, for me, it has always come back to who's the one pra practicing it. Mm -hmm. Was there one you, you mentioned, maybe teachers or sages guides, was there one early on in your journey that helped you get to that depth that you're speaking of, and then in turn helped you become the practitioner who was able to provide this transformation for your clients. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just a, a concept on paper anymore. It was something you're actually experiencing deeply. So in terms of, I, I don't even know how early on that was, but if I were to, you know, maybe name the two, three things that I felt have been the most transformational in my life, uh, one of the modalities is called voice dialogue. Um, and it's a process that comes from the assumption that instead of thinking of myself as one coherent person, yeah, so Nadia with one set of behaviors and beliefs and values, it's actually closer to the reality of how I experience myself and how others might experience 
me to think of there are different versions of Nadia that come out under different uh, contextual factors, right? So depending on who I talk with, depending on you know, even what physical state I am in at any one moment in time, depending on the period in my life, uh, different versions of me become more or less important. And um, voice dialogue has really helped me to find more compassion with who I am, because it's a it's an approach that as a modality really values the different facets of what it means to be human and nothing in itself is seen as good or bad. Um, and, and one particular thing that I love about voice dialogue, because there are many different uh, schools of thought that explore different inner selves or voices. Um, but what voice dialogue does in particular that I find quite helpful is it, it always explores everything in a polarity. So, you know, let's say you have an inner driver, a part that is really pushing you forward in life, then you also have the opposite. You have an inner, you know, let's call it your inner couch potato that has no ambition at all, that rather lay on the sofa and watch Netflix all day. And then the question within this framework is always how, how conscious can you be of both of these polarities and how can you befriend them to a degree where they become resources for you? Yeah. So voice dialogue has been very influential. And I was so lucky to have a few extremely good teachers and, and guides um, who were familiar with this methodology. Um, another one is uh, the money work and projection work that I learned through my friend and mentor, Peter Koenig. And I met him about 18 years ago or so. And Peter coming from a lens of Jungian psychology also in a way looked at polarities, but he also looked at the principle of projection and, and realizing how much of the pain that we experience in, in life has to do with what we have dissociated from in our own sense of self and projected onto somebody or something else, right? So the projection screen can obviously be people. So that can be my partner, it can be you, it can be you know, all teachers, sort of an amorphous mass of people, but it can also even be something more abstract like money. And what Peter then did is to take money as an entry point into personal development by really looking very closely at what have people dissociated from in their own identity, projected onto money, um, and therefore don't have an, as an accessible resource in themselves anymore. And the process that Peter developed out of this, which he called money work, is one of the core staples of my work today with clients. I find it incredibly helpful and also very uh, related to this idea of voice dialogue that we talked about before. And then the third piece for me has been the discovery of the importance of my body and my body as an instrument of change, but also a source of information and, and really my being in a way, right? So today I think identity is always an, an embodied experience. And if something in my state of being physically changes, then that's also equal to psychological shift and any deep psychological shift will create a physiological experience and a physiological change. And I've been uh, ex extremely happy and, and, and lucky to have a fantastic body worker here in Berlin who I've been with for, uh, I don't know, 12 years or something wow. who has really yeah, helped me to unpeel so many different layers of who I think I am and discover new facets of that, which, which has been great. And, you know, and frankly, for me personal, um, 
body work has also been so impactful because for people who are in their heads a lot, to have a strong body worker can be quite a mind-blowing experience because you discover, and I know that you're familiar with that as well, right? That you discover that um, somebody can know something about you without you even talking about it. And, and to me, that was, that was mind-boggling. Like I had no idea before I embarked on this journey. Mm. I'm, I would love to unpack all three of these with you. And, and so I think we will, but I want to start with maybe an example from voice dialogue and, and it could be with a client or it could be something that profoundly shifted in your life from using voice dialogue. I want to make it concrete because I have, I'm sure you're familiar with internal family systems and I, it, it sounds very, very similar to voice dialogue. It's, it's one of the different modalities that you mentioned that it kind of arrives at the same thing, but I love in voice dialogue, you actually are physically moving. Like if there's one part of you that you call it the inner perfectionist or something, you, you would place yourself in a different part of the room, take on that energy. And then maybe it's talking to a different part of you. Do you have any examples that come to mind for clients or yourself? Yeah, actually, let, let me tell you a, a recent anecdote. Um, you know, that's something that I experienced and that uh, recently popped up again. So about 12 years ago, maybe, I went to run a client workshop in Luxembourg. And I did this together with a very dear colleague of mine, um, who's this really handsome man. Um, uh, yeah, and very charming. You know, he's just a, a wonderful human being. So, and, and, but he knows that he's, he looks great and, and it's something that he knows how to, how to use as well, right? So him and I were checking into this hotel in Luxembourg and he's in front of me in the, in the check-in line and he immediately starts to chat up the receptionist and he sort of flirts with her and, you know, compliments her on, yeah, and I don't know, something about her, her looks, uh, then talks about how amazing Luxembourg looks and then he says oh you know it's our first time in Luxembourg like this is so exciting it would be so great to get a room with a view over the city and you know and she's so all, all smitten by him um, and ends up giving him basically the, the the penthouse suite of the hotel which happened to be free right and as Hendrik is doing that in the line in front of me, I'm sort of standing behind him completely indignified. I, I don't even at the time, I had no idea it was coming over me, but I was listening to this whole interaction and I just found it completely and utterly improper. Yeah, so I could feel myself turn into this lemon, right? So he turns around, he's like, hey, look at the room that I got. You should definitely ask her for sort of a, you know, a special room as well. And I'm like, no, I don't do that. Right. So end of the story was I ended up with a room on the first floor overlooking the parking lot to the back of the hotel. Um, he is up in the penthouse. Right. He, he calls me and says, oh, Nadia, this is so amazing. You have to come up and have a drink with me. And, you know, and of course, I'm like, no, I'm tired. I'm going to bed. And, and so I sit there in my room feeling very sort of righteous. Right. About having made the, the proper choice um, while Hendrik is sort of, you know, having drinks in, in the penthouse. And at the time, again, I didn't really know what happened. And a few years later, I did a session with a facilitator who facilitated me and I discovered two different parts in me. 
one of them I ended up calling because in voice dialogue, you often ask the parts if they have a name for themselves. And they don't always do, but sometimes they do. And that can be helpful in building a more conscious relationship with them. So the part, one of the parts that came out called itself Mother Maria. And Mother Maria was modeled after my grandmother, who was uh, a Catholic, but the most Protestant Catholic you can imagine. And she was all about this idea, what is proper? What do the neighbors think? You know, never ask more than your share in life. Um, you just don't do that. And, and I realized looking back at that experience at the hotel in Luxembourg that I had gotten completely hijacked by Mother Maria, who just thought it was you know, the, the most horrible thing in life was to chat up this poor girl at the reception and ask for something that wasn't yours to ask for. Um, in that session, I also discovered another part, which was very closely modeled after my aunt. Um, and, and my aunt for me was representing hedonism, right? So everything in her life was about having a lot having the best you could have and enjoying the hell out of it, right? With very little boundaries too. So there's a downside to that as well, but she was definitely living life to the fullest. And, and then I realized, and that's always the idea in voice dialogue, that once you've identified the two polar opposites, then the question is, A, which part has taken up more space in your life? In my case, that was definitely Mother Maria which part has taken the back seat or was even locked in some basement room, which for me was, you know, the part modeled after my aunt. Um, and then to begin in this awareness process of looking at what could I actually gain from letting more of my, you know, my aunt's energy into my life versus only being driven by my grandmother's energy. Um, what is the reason why she became so big? because there's always a good reason, right? In my case, my, my father's side of the family, which was also my, my aunt's line, um, there, there was a big story with alcoholism and with basically hedonism completely wrecking their lives. So I guess I installed my mother Maria as a protective measure to not end up like that side of my family, like an alcoholic or a drug addict or you know something that I didn't want to be. But of course, by the time this whole story unfolded, I was way beyond being truly at risk of that happening. So for me to discover Mother Maria and then this, this energy of my aunt was hugely important because it really brought more life, energy and more joy um, to me. And yeah, and if you don't mind me, I, I would continue the story into the now time because it actually sure. popped up again just a, a sort of a month ago. I ended up uh, going to New York for a client engagement, lovely retreat center just in, in upstate New York. Um, and as the, the bellboy brought me to my room, you know, sort of really fancy place. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong, like this whole hotel was amazing, right? So even this room, which was a standard room, was amazing. However, what I noticed was it was a room facing this tiny in, inner courtyard. And because it was winter, it was very barren. And I basically looked at a brick wall. And I had this moment of going, oh, oh God, it would have been so nice to have a view over the property, which was beautiful. Then this other voice cutting in, well, you know, really now you're not happy with this room? What's wrong with you? But then I thought back of this story years ago at the hotel in Luxembourg, and I thought, why not ask? 
Yeah, what's what's the danger in in asking? So I actually turned around and I said, "Listen, I you know this room is wonderful, and I was wondering, do you think there's any chance I could have a a room with a view overlooking the grounds?" And then the universe tested me a little bit because the next thing that happened, he said, "Well, probably not tonight because the woman deciding that is actually gone, but you know I'll check in with with her tomorrow. Um, I'll give you a ring." Next thing I know is I get a text message from the client um, or at least the, the key contact person at the client who is saying, oh, is there something wrong with your room, Nadia? Because I just got a message from the hotel that you asked for an upgrade. So you can imagine my inner mother, Maria, going, oh, my God, I told you, you know, this is what happens. Now you make everybody's life complicated and they think you're this entitled person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm stressed out as hell. I'm going, oh my God, I should have never asked. So I try to backpedal and, you know, call the client and tell them everything is great. And it was just a question. And I didn't know it was, you know, this was an upgrade. And so I created all of this locomotion, but the end of the story was actually, I did get the upgrade because I ended up staying there for five days. So did my co-facilitator who then also got an upgrade um, and everybody was happy, right? And I was really thankful towards the staff and the client didn't have to pay extra. So it actually turned out that my inner hedonist did get me into a better place, but my inner mother Maria was completely mortified by the request that I had dared to make. Yeah, so uh -huh. that would be an, an expression of how these different inner paths can, can work within us. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just out of curiosity, because I'm a native New Yorker, what was the hotel that you were staying at? Uh, I went to Glenmere Mansion. And okay. yeah, so that was upstate New York, about an hour and a half outside of New York. Got it. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Okay, <laughs> so I one, there's, there's so many places I want to go from here. But one is I would just love to hear what that looks like in real time. Like I, I imagine people are listening to this. And, and even myself, as you're talking, I'm imagining when a part of me gets activated, like, what do I do in real time to ground myself and, and to listen to these two parts of me? And there might even be another audience member who's like, I don't really, maybe as an executive, and I know you do work with executives, and it's like, things happen really quickly in, in real time. It's like, how do you ground yourself in uh, maybe moments that call for quick action, or it can be hard to like slow down and, and tune into like this part wants this, this other part wants this. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great question. And I would say in a way, the real time stuff is sort of step B, right? Mm -hmm. So step A for me would be exploring these different energies within yourself in a controlled environment of a coaching session or you know a therapy session whatever you end up doing so for me as well i you know i didn't stumble across my mother maria and my my inner aunt um by accident it was something that unfolded in an actual coaching session where somebody facilitated me so the first step for me is always uh exposing yourself to an environment with somebody like yourself or like me um, who can help you create awareness about patterns that just weren't so conscious for you before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's step A, just even knowing that this happens within me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then step B is to begin to be more attentive to how these parts, these energies, these voices, whatever you want to call them actually show up 
in your everyday life and beginning to notice. And that might be a piece of homework that a coach give you, gives mm -hmm. you, right? To say, okay, just notice when does Mother Maria show up and when does your inner, my aunt is called LOL, so I called this uh, inner part LOL, that was her nickname. Uh, when, is she, when is she showing up? And I began to notice that I could I could spot them in daily interactions, like, for example, even grocery shopping, right? Whereas my inner Maria would always go for the, uh, the cheese that was marked down because that's still a good enough piece of cheese, mm -hmm. right? And my inner lol would go for... Um, you know, the, the most expensive cheese that they had, plus a bottle of champagne, right? Just to make, <laughs> <laughs> just to make that clear, because they go well together. And then to notice both of these impulses and begin weighing them against each other and, and sort of making a, an informed choice, right? Because the whole idea with voice dialogue is, and I'm sure that's the same with internal family systems therapy, um, is to become aware and then to not let them take over the steering wheel, right? So, so one uh, metaphor that I have is imagine you're, you're driving a VW bus, right? And instead of just letting, letting any of these parts grab the wheel and take over to say, listen, I'm driving this bus, you can have an opinion, I will happily listen to your advice. And then in the, at the end of the day, I will call the shots. So step, you know, step B is sort of noticing these different energies and different life situations. And then that would maybe even actually be step C, you know, under fire in, in a really heated moment. Am I then able to very quickly notice these energies within me and make a more informed choice than if I just came from a completely reactive stance? But that's you know, that, that really is mastery. I mean, you know, I, I'm struggling with that. If, if I get triggered, I would be lying to say that I'm always completely grounded in these different energies and then make this Zen choice about stuff. I often drop into a part, completely react from that part. Mm -hmm. But what is different now is, A, I'm able to recognize that very quickly afterwards. And I really don't mind making amends anymore and correcting my course and saying, listen, this, you know, this came from you know, this came from the wrong place. Like I didn't, I, I don't actually believe that. Let me backpedal here and let me uh, rectify the situation. And I'm sorry if I hurt you or, you know, whatever it might've been, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then of course, true mastery will probably be if at any moment in time, I'm able to sense into these energies and then make that informed choice from, from that more aware place. And that sometimes happens, but it's, you know, it's not, not always there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did this work with voice dialogue predate doing money work? Because I'm, I, you know, I'm listening, especially with Mother Maria, it sounds like there was an aversion, like one of the ways that you were probably projecting your beliefs onto money was that maybe, you know, this is my words, not yours, but it would make me an incredibly selfish, overindulgent person to be re requesting something like this is perfectly good. I don't need something else. Was this something that you came to before you did money work or did they, was there a lot of overlap in like, okay, I, I had a voice dialogue session here. I'm realizing how this shows up in my relationship with money. Like, how can I integrate the two? Th does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. It, so interestingly, timeline wise, I think I came across money work first, but to be perfectly honest, when I first encountered Peter, I did know that I found something important, but I wasn't 
at my level of development yet where I was able to fully integrate and handle that knowledge. So I, even though I kept my contact with Peter and I asked him to become my mentor and we were in, in you know, monthly conversation, I wasn't yet able to connect the dots fully. Then I stumbled across voice dialogue that made a whole world of sense to me. And it was only after that I began to realize that we're actually approaching you know, the same truth from, from slightly different angles, but they are very, very compatible, right? Mm -hmm. As you said, there's a lot of overlap in, in these two methodologies, but it, it took me a while to be able to understand and master the money work um, to that degree. So from as you've gone deeper into the money work, I mean, I've heard you discuss before that on other podcasts, I think that when you were young, your goal was maybe to have a penthouse or to accumulate as much money as possible. And as you've become more conscious and done more of the inner work, there's still a desire to generate wealth, maybe, but it's not from a place of, I want this nice thing. It's maybe, I mean, this, this seems like a good on-ramp into the work that you do with conscious you. Uh, so yeah, I would love to hear what your relationship with money looks like now, and then a little bit more about what you do with your company in Conscious You and, and how you help other people develop their more grounded relationship with money. Hmm. So the, the money work um, has really impacted me profoundly, although I was a little late to fully understand its full impact, right? So sometimes I'm like, oh, damn, I wish I would have really understood this 12 years ago. That would have uh, saved me a lot of grief. But, you know, we're, we're there when we're there, right? And what happened as an effect of that was, so firstly, maybe just as an introduction for your listeners, the whole sure. idea, again, with money, um, according to Peter Koenig, is that we have cut something out of our sense of self, out of our definition of our own identity and projected it outwards. And in his particular case with the money work, he is very interested in, or we are now, since I'm working in, in that field too, very interested in what is it that you are projecting onto money. And that could be anything between, you know, quote unquote, positive or negative quality. So it could be things like freedom and security, that you have dislodged from your own sense of self. And now you think you can only be free and secure if you have money, or it could be something like money is dirty. Money is manipulative. People with money are corrupt. So it's sort of your darker impulses, your shadow that you have dissociated from yourself and can only see outside of yourself. And in both cases, the idea is now, how do you get to a point where you can reintegrate these qualities into your definition of self, into your understanding of your own humanity, so that you have a bigger playing field and more degrees of freedom of how to show up in the world? Because one of the things that I learned from Peter is everything is contextual. Yeah? So no human quality is in itself evil or bad. Right. So even my ability to manipulate, my ability to lie, my ability to um, to corrupt can be a, 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 a skill, can be a resource under specific circumstances. And the, the question really is for him always, how conscious are you about using it? Because if you use it unconsciously, you create damage. If you use it consciously, you can use it to promote your values or a project that you really believe in or a good cause that you uh, truly believe in. 
So for me, um, money work has become, for that reason, a, a huge part of my coaching practice because I find it's it's this amazing entry point into inner work. And I found that even with people who've done a lot of inner work, um, everything that you haven't resolved yet will show up in your relationship with money. Yeah, so it's sort of a fail-proof um, door. And what has shifted for me over the years is because, as you said, I did start from, and again, that might be connected to the scarcity hot potato that we talked about at the very beginning, um, this, this notion that to be safe, I need to be rich. Yeah, so as the anecdote goes, when people ask my, me how, what I wanted to be when I grew up as a little girl, I said, I want to be rich. Yeah, because somehow that seemed to uh, yeah, signify uh, a, a, an easy life, something that I didn't experience my parents to have. Um, and because of the money work that has really shifted, I have become very unattached to material things. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting because it's not like I don't care. I do like beautiful things and I will buy beautiful things, but there isn't any illusion anymore that that creates anything outside of the joy of being around that in the moment. It doesn't, I don't derive my security from this. I don't derive my safety from this. And one of the outcomes, for example, has been that my wife and I, we don't own any property. And, and most people at our age own property of some sort because it's sort of the smart thing to do. And I, it just never really turned out that way. And I don't believe anymore that property is what would keep me safe in the end. And, you know, frankly, looking at um, recent events in the world, I mean, you know, you ask any Ukrainian who might have had wonderful properties in the Ukraine, like all of that can go to, to hell in a moment, right? Political shift, systems shift, there are wars that break out, people disown you, you know, the, I don't know, the, the stock exchange crashes. I mean, things happen and they have happened. So security is never in money. But now this is not an abstract idea anymore. It's actually a felt sense. So that has shifted. And one of the wonderful pieces of advice that Peter once gave to me around security was he said, if you want to increase your sense of security, then invest first and foremost in your health, invest in your education, and also invest in your relationships, because ultimately those are the things that are going to carry you through the day and they're the hardest to be taken away. Yeah. And I know that even that to some degree is a projection screen, by, by the way, right? So I, I know that I'm also okay um, without being healthy. I'm okay without being highly educated and I'm okay without having a lot of connections. Um, but they do create a different net of um, well-being within me than money could ever by itself. Yeah. Hmm. So there's a, one of the things that came up in, in this answer was the, I think values and needs both have come up a, a couple of times. And I would love to hear how that shows up in, in the work you do as well. And how you, is that something, I'll backpedal a little bit. One of the things that was coming to mind as you were talking was say, I don't know, I come across a, a course. It's like, it lines up with something that it's like, it's my values. I'm continuing to invest in my education. It's 
something that I know will be fulfilling for me. It's in a subject matter that will help me become a better coach or something. And it is $1,500. So I'm imagining myself sitting with that and going, how do I know if this is something that is worth me investing in, or if maybe it's not the right time. And that is in itself, I can imagine myself getting activated around the, the scarcity of like, oh, that's a, that's a lot of money to put into it. How do I know it's going to work out? Uh, maybe I'll do this in a year from now. So I'm wondering with regard to money, like when something lines up with your values and needs, how do you check in with yourself around like this? I think this is worth the investment right now, or maybe it's a, a no for me. You know, obviously there is no easy um, answer to that question yeah. because obviously there is a part where I would say, well, you do your research, right? And and my truffle pig, pig nature, right, that I talked about before has always been very much um, informed by people who I trust who then send me in certain directions and said, you, you know, check out this modality, check out this course, check out this teacher. And based on that trust, I, I then followed that path and, and very often was re rewarded with great experiences. But, but let, let me take your question and rephrase it slightly. So let's take something more abstract, like, for example, what should you study at university? Right. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes have parents in my coaching practice who then say, you know, my, my son is about to go off to university. And what do you think I should advise to him? Like, do you think it would be smart for him to go to business school or to, you know, become a lawyer or become a doctor or, and, and I think that's a great um, moment in time to really check what, what are your projections on, on that particular career path? Because the ideas of course, um, that person, that son would invest into a safe career, into a safe future and safe, meaning he will be able to make money with that somewhere down the line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where I think money work then comes in and would ask an entirely different question. And the question would be, what does he really love to do? Like what, what gets him excited? Right. And what, what gets him excited are the things that are aligned with, with his values. So, um, those are the things that make us be alive. So for me, that has become the guiding question. I'm not so much interested anymore in will it pay out? Is it going to be successful? You know, does it provide a great living five years from now? I'm much more coming from the stance now of am I excited about it right now? Because frankly, I don't know if I'm going to be alive in a year from now. Yeah, stuff happens. People get cancer. People have accidents, um, you know, life continues in unforeseen ways. So to invest into this quote unquote idea of safety that is somewhere way down the line is akin to the, the mindset that, uh, you know, one or two generations before us had around uh, working so hard to get the golden watch by the time you retire. Mm -hmm. Right. And what did that ever get anybody? Yeah. So, so for me, the question is always what makes you alive in this moment? What, what do you love to do? What would you even do if you won't get any money for it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think people should pay more attention to. Mm. Well, it's very heartbreaking to learn right now in this conversation that that gold watch is not going to keep me safe, Nadia. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Uh, I wanted to, the, the third leg after money work and voice dialogue that you mentioned, which has been really transformational for me, has been 
I don't know if you said somatic, but maybe body work and understanding what is happening in your physiology and not living from the neck up. So could you explain a little bit more about what body work is in the work that you do with your body work? Is it a therapist? And uh, maybe how you use that in your coaching practice as well. And what are, what are some things that you look for in, in body work? Yeah. So firstly, I would say, you know, there's, there's very broad definitions of what body work is. So I don't claim to, to give you anything that is uh, perfect here uh, or that, you know, would find in a dictionary. My understanding of it is to simply take the body um, as a living organism that holds as much information in other places, but the brain that are of equal or, or higher importance than, than what you're thinking at any moment in time. And to also realize that what you're experiencing, of course, informs your thinking and vice versa, so that it's a holistic circular system. And, and in a way, we can't really separate one part from the body from any other part. So our brain is important and what we think is important, but it's not the only thing that's important, right? And, and, and for example, if you touch a certain subject matter in a coaching session and somebody uh, suddenly slumps or they get a pain somewhere or you know they have this sense of heaviness um, or a lump in their tummy, whatever it might be, to not ignore that, but train people to pay attention to these signals and, and assume that everything has a story to tell. Yeah, so, so one of the ways that I would assume you're also using the body is to say, well, if you feel, so, so firstly, first piece again is noticing. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's like in voice dialogue or internal family systems therapy is, is you just to become more aware, right? And we all have become so disembodied that even noticing physiological signals is is like a new language we need to learn to understand. So that's the, the first step is to just notice. And then another step could be to just assume that this signal has something to tell you, that there is some information there that wants to be heard. And, and one of the most simple ways, you know, would be to say, if this lump in your tummy could talk, what would it say? Yeah, to even treat that lump in the tummy nearly like a self, like a different voice in you, or to go, okay, so if you notice this lump in your tummy, what kind of movement or touch would actually feel nourishing right now? And then that person might intuitively put their hands on their belly and, and begin to rub their belly a bit and then go, okay, you do that for a while and just notice what changes, right? So for me, body work or somatic work has a lot to do with bringing us back to, to things that we intuitively know or knew and have unlearned because of our disembodied culture. But we can go back to that. It, it's not gone because we have this body all the time. So it's definitely a language that we were born with and we can learn to speak it again. And that for me is body work. So the practitioner that I work with is somewhere at an intersection between a coach, a therapist, a somatic worker, I don't know, a witch, like the stuff that she knows about me by just looking at me is beyond me. I don't know how she derives that, but she is usually spot on. So that's the magic of somatic work for me. I know a lot of your clients are either executives or they might just be organizations altogether. It's not, it's not necessarily just one person that you're doing your work with. 
And I'm wondering when someone or an organization hires you, do they, do they really know what they're signing up for? Like what are they usually coming to you with an outcome in mind or do they know like this, we're just, we're going to get more in touch with our bodies. We're going to, we're going to get more in touch with the different parts of ourselves. Like I know that that's going to help me live the fulfilled life that I'm seeking anyway. So is it, or is it a combination of both of those things? I would say it has changed a little bit over time, right? So in the beginning, when I started out as a coach A, um, I obviously changed in how I approach my, my work and my practice as, as well. In the beginning, I thought I need to have a very clear game plan, right? And I need to define coaching goals with my clients. And, um, you know, and I, then I need to write them this letter of intent and what is the outcome of your coaching process. Over time, I've pretty much dropped all of that because my experience today is, what a client comes in with in terms of their articulated wants and needs is what they know from how much they know at this point. And that doesn't take into account all the stuff they don't know yet. Mm. And the more they find out about themselves and how they function, the more they experience a shift in what they find desirable or what they would find as um you know, freeing in, in their own self-development, self-discovery process. So I do have sort of a very rough idea based on my experience and the thousands of hours of coaching that I now have with individual clients where this journey might lead, but I leave that pretty open. Now, of course, after 20 years in this business, most of my clients come to me through a recommendation. So therefore somebody else has already told them something about the work with me. And that makes it a lot easier to be honest because I don't have to explain so much anymore. And they just, just sort of trust the recommendation of their friend. So that's the work with, with individuals, with organizations. And you were previously also asking about Conscious You and the, the company that yeah. I have. So the idea with Conscious You is, um, that I had become frustrated with my lack of impact in the world based on how many people I can actually take through any of these processes in a meaningful way, right? So obviously the most intense form is an individual process, uh, then there's team coaching, then there's coaching of groups. And I did all three of those for years often with the intention of transforming the entire system of, of really shifting something in the fabric of how people are with each other of how the culture of the system works and what i found um, over and over again is that the expectation always fell short uh, or, or was bigger than the, the the thing we were able to deliver on um, in the end and that had to do with sort of a mismatch and expectation and what was realistic because the expectation was you take an executive or an executive team or even a group of senior leaders through a personal development process that is all about inner work and understanding themselves, understanding their triggers, understanding how they communicate with other people. And then they have insights that are so profound that not only they change, but they are then able to take this back to their team. And somehow that then transforms the entire organization. It's, it's you know, sort of the trickle down effect. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that doesn't work. And the mismatch of expectation and reality is to have an insight for myself 
is a very different beast than being able to understand something so deeply that I'm able to articulate it in a meaningful way and deliver that to another person. It's a different skill set, right? That's why you and I are coaches, because that's a particular skill set. So I think on, on one level, it was also unfair towards executives to assume they should be able to do that. But then I thought, okay, so if, if that doesn't work, then one of the insights is inner work seems to be important. If we want to transform systems, if we want to shift organizational cultures, we need to do inner work, right? I'm, I'm a deep believer of that. However, how do you do inner work with hundreds or even thousands of people in a system? And I've been in culture change projects where we took, uh, I think in the biggest project I was ever in, we took 1,200 people through a personal development journey that was three days long, but that took four years. And by the time we were done with the last cohort, the first people had already left the organization again. And the entire organization was so big that even those 1,200 people were just a, a drop in the bucket. Um, so then I thought, okay, if, if it needs inner work, then the second insight was it needs everybody or at least a significant number of people in the system. And just to do it just with the with senior leadership or leadership is, is simply not enough. And then the third insight was it also seems to need time because, you know, you and I have done so many trainings and courses and we know that this is like this whole process of coming to yourself is like peeling an onion. And every time you think you're done, you discover another layer of the onion and another valley of tears and you, you go like how is that even possible I thought I was done with this and you weren't yeah so it it takes time so to to send people whether they're leaders or anybody else in an organization through a three-day experience can be a wonderful door opener but it's not enough to change a culture so out of those three insights of needs in our work, it needs everybody, it needs time. I then came to create Conscious You as a company, looking at how can we use technology to really make this kind of inner work scalable and also democratize access to deep learning processes. Because the, you know, the coaching with a live coach in a room where everybody's shipped to a wonderful location, that's so expensive that most organizations will also not afford that for anybody else but senior leadership. Mm -hmm. And now with Conscious You, what we've done is I've taken these personal development uh, stories and journeys and, and sort of split them apart into uh, sort of a five-day experience uh, or started with a five-day experience and then took that and, and created all of these little modules that now stretch out over three to four months and because we deliver the content piece online with, uh, you know, with videos, with audio files that people can listen to in their own time, self-reflection exercises that everybody can do from home, at their desk, in the tube, wherever they are, and combine that with social learning that happens in smaller teams with colleagues from work uh, in video conferences where you again mixed up with other people from work. Um, that way we make it affordable. We, we basically created a cost-effective way of, of delivering personal transformation to everybody in an organization. And for us now, it doesn't really matter if we're talking about you know, 20 people or 2,000 people. We could, we could do either in, in basically the same amount of time. So, yeah, and then, you know, to go just tie that back to the money work. So Conscious You as a company 
has a main focus on doing organizational work. However, we have one open program that is open to the public and that is called CU Money. And that's where I've taken the money work and together with Peter Koenig, who was my, my, or he's my friend and mentor, wrote um, a, a three and a half month process that is just, well, three months process that is just focused on understanding my relationship with money and taking that as an entry point into personal transformation and development. Mm -hmm. Well, this seems like a good segue into talking about conscious tribes. It's an, another topic I know that you're really passionate about. And we both live in pretty individualistic cultures. And so we, we tend to, one way that we might project that is with our personal development work, we make it really personal. And we look at ourselves as an island and we can kind of fix ourselves up. And I love the invitation around conscious tribes to do this work in a group, do it with other people. So could you talk a little bit about what conscious tribes are and, and why you think they're so important for development? Thank you for, for picking that up because that's really um, very dear to my heart. So for, for that, I need to dig a bit into my background just to explain sure. why that is so relevant to me, right? So you already mentioned to your audience that I'm half German and then my, my dad's side of the family was Russian and Polish. So my grandfather was from St. Petersburg and my grandmother from Warsaw. And they, you know, after sort of a horrendous uh, experience during World War II, um, being locked in, in work camps, um, surviving a concentration camp, um, you know, surviving sort of the most horrible experiences on, on their, what do you call that, when somebody's fleeing on their flight? Is that a thing? <laughs> I don't even know what that is called. But, you know, so on, on, their, on their flight to safety, so to speak, when the, the war was ending and it was clear that um, they, they couldn't stay in, in the sector that would be governed by the Russians, they, my grandparents both fled to uh, sort of the Western sector that would be governed by the Americans. Um, but then they got stranded in hostile country, if you want, because they got stranded in, in Germany and that's where they ended their, their lives eventually. And the ripple effect of the trauma that they had experienced, um, the pain that they had experienced, the fear that they had experienced and never been able to resolve. That is something that left marks in my family, deep, deep marks. And I think I'm literally the first generation that was able to integrate these experiences. You find all these hot potatoes and then decide which one of these are actually relevant to me today and which ones don't need to exist anymore. Um, but so I've seen the, the outcome of unconscious collectives. I've seen the pain that is caused by unconscious leaders as we now experience again um, because of the war in Ukraine and how, how Putin is, is acting, right? That's, it's an unconscious person who is driven by impulses he doesn't even fully understand. So it has become a, a huge theme in my life to look at how can I prevent something or support society to prevent something like a second world war? How can I prevent another Holocaust? Because my wife is Jewish and she has obviously lost most of her family in the Holocaust. So again, all of these victims of unconscious impulses and drivers. 
and and to me the the answer is well we need to become more conscious and when you ask me what does that mean then for me a conscious tribe is a collective of people where everybody actually does invest in inner work so people become more self-reflective they have more compassion with themselves and others they, they are in, in in deep dialogue with one another and they really take ownership for their part of any story that unfolds, whether positive or negative. Um, the second piece of a conscious tribe for me is this ability to see a bigger picture, to realize that we're not an island, as you said before, that we're always connected to something else. So whatever our organization is doing or our family is doing, or I don't know, an association that I'm part of is doing, it's affecting other systems, right? It has a ripple effect in the world. And to become more mindful of that is something that I think also down the line would be able to prevent even more trauma from being experienced because of uh, ecological disasters, right? Because our disconnection from the bigger picture has led us to this point where we're at today. Then the, the third point for me, or the third pillar of a conscious tribe is this, this deep trust in the importance of building relationships and living deep relationships because we're social animals we we need to be in connection and the more solid and trust-based relationships we have at work we have in our families the healthier the entire system is and then the fourth and final pillar is for me to establish and practice conscious rituals because you know, we we have this tendency to fall back into old habits quite quickly. So unless I for myself, but then also we as a collective determine what are the rituals and practices that upkeep this different way of being, we're probably going to slide back. So there's it, it's like a, creating a dental hygiene plan for consciousness, right? That's the, the ritual part for me. So that, yeah, so the four uh, pillars for me really are inner work, seeing the bigger picture, living deep relationships and creating and practicing conscious rituals. Do you have specific rituals that have been foundational for you as you to prevent you from maybe sinking back into those habits that you're trying to avoid? One, one of the you know easy ones that I think that anybody can establish with a collective and if it's done from a true place, from a heartfelt place, it makes a difference. Otherwise it's something that's very, very easy to mock is what, you know, in our line of work, it's called a check-in, right? Where instead of diving directly into a meeting, into the content of what we're talking about, a team could pause for a moment and look at and give everybody, you know, 90 seconds to say something more personal, to check in as a human being, to say, this is how I'm here today. This is how I feel. This is something that's on my mind right now, for example, right? So you can vary uh, the, the questions, obviously, that you ask depending on the function of the team or the kind of information that you would like to have in the room. But a, a check-in can be something incredibly helpful because it brings up topics that otherwise are not easy to see because we don't have, we can't read minds, right? So if you sit there with a grumpy face and we didn't have a check-in, I might just think you're an idiot who doesn't, you know, have his mood under control. I might take it personal and think I did something to upset you. You know, I might have a million explanations about your grumpy face when you do a check-in and you let me know that you have a sick partner at home or a sick parent or 
you know, that your dog got run over, like whatever it is. And suddenly I have context that allows me to empathize with you as a human being. So for me, a check-in is actually one of the most simple and potentially one of the most uh, transformative tools that we can use in collectives. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that I think emerges as we continue to do the work, or at least this has been true for me, and I'll, I'll check it with you, it can be profoundly shifting in a positive way and in that you realize that you have agency and you realize how connected that or I'll say I like I realize how connected I am with other people and the world in a way that I never had access to before and then on the flip side I imagine and this is certainly true for me sometimes if we do the work it can be if you become awake and aware of all the different, I don't know, profound harm that we're doing to the world, it can be dejecting to open, open yourself to that. And I'm wondering for you, if it's, is it a blend of both? And do you have, uh, like, are you optimistic about the prospect of what we could do together in the future? Or is your outlook a little bit bleak? Or does it depend on the day or the moment? Yeah, I, I would say it really depends on the day and the moment, because I'm very keenly aware of these different polarities in me. You know, the part that is optimistic and sees all the fantastic signs of change and, and even just the world's openness to now address things like inner work at scale, the importance of, you know, concepts like mindfulness and whatever might be out there that people really uh, laughed about even 10 years ago and suddenly it has become mainstream and, and people see it as important or the uh, you know the fact that we now discuss mental health not as something that is hush hush and you can't talk about it but something that is out in the open or diversity belonging inclusion or you know ec our ecological impact and, and the havoc we're creating as as humankind so, so there are a lot of positive signs that something is shifting in our collective conscious consciousness and sort of upscaling. And at the same time, I'm also keenly aware of my inner pessimist who looks at the state of the world and goes, yeah, that's nice, but that's a little, that's too little too late. Yeah. And I can completely align myself with that perspective as well. And, and, and I think there's a lot of evidence out there pointing to that being true. And, and I think, you know, from an ecological perspective, for sure, we have crossed a threshold from which it will take generations to fully recover if, if, we, ever, if we ever fully can. So what I see as sort of my daily practice is to check in, going back to our previous conversation about voice dialogue and inner parts, is to, to acknowledge that both of these perspectives live within me and they have, you know, they have very good evidence both for what they see to be true. And then to take that and create a, a balance within me and, 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 you know, just sort of flow with it and, and realize that either perspective is also not the full truth. I think that's helpful, right? So if I drop into my pessimist to realize, well, that's not all of the story, same way as when I drop into my optimist to go, well, and yes, but, right? So it's, it's a constant dance and I find it sometimes easier and sometimes harder. And they're definitely, you know, especially with the, the recent war in the Ukraine breaking out and us being so close to it here in, in Berlin, Germany, and, and seeing thousands of refugees pouring into the city every day. 
I do find it sometimes hard to, to keep the glass as half full perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think, well, what choice do we have, right? I mean, if yeah. I if I fully give into my pessimist, then I lay in, under my bed and and go into a deep depression, and I don't. I certainly won't change the world with that. I know I know that. So mm -hmm. I I always find a way to re-engage with the other side and looking at the glass is half full, and there are people out there who want the world to be different. Mm -hmm. Do you do any work with clients that? maybe remind you of a part of yourself that you don't like and and get activated and or do you do do you work with any clients who are it's a little bit tougher for you and, and one of the reasons I'm asking this is because I think the the greatest beneficiaries of our work or if we're being really honest with ourselves as coaches the best work that we could do as a coach would be to help someone who's unconscious like Putin or Donald Trump do this type of work and really get in, in touch with themselves. So um, I, I doubt that you have a client who is like either of them, but do you have clients who maybe outwardly you're like, I don't know how I feel about working with this person. And then you end up making big shifts with them. Yes. So, you know, the, the, the first, the first thing that I know now about human beings is I can pretty much fall in love with anybody. And that is one of the you know, the most heartwarming gifts that I have received through this, this work, because what I've realized, if I truly understand another person's story, I do feel compassion for them, right? That doesn't mean that I will be okay with all the choices that they have made and all the, the damage that they have created by no means, but it is possible to connect with them as a human being. Now in my line of work, of course, or in our line of work, uh, there, you know, there is a natural pre-selection in a way, right? So that the people that end up calling me or writing me an email to work with me, they, they are already at a place in their lives where they have noticed that something about their way of being in the world hasn't worked for them. And they are already at the point where they're beginning to wonder if it's not just something in the external environment that they need to fix, but that there might be something about them that they need to look at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I have experienced in the past is um, especially running uh, workshops for leaders and organizations, because in, in those settings, you sometimes have people who didn't fully choose to be there, right? They, at, at the beginning of the workshops, we always said, you know, you can, you can see yourself as a prisoner in, in this scenario and go through the entire workshop as a captive, as a prisoner who didn't have a choice and who just needed to show up here because somebody ordered you to be here. And those people have, on occasion were in, in, in the room. And one of the most gratifying experiences for me has always been to see them melt. And they melted usually because of a connection with another person in a room of a connection of sometimes that other person was themselves, right. Of, of, understanding or experiencing something in them that they had never seen or felt before or seeing that in another in, in, in a colleague um, and having compassion at a level that they have never experienced before so those moments of transformation are amazing however that being said they have been probably a handful of experiences over the last 20 years where I where I eventually gave up, where I felt I was biting on granite, right? Where a client came to me with an agenda that I, I thought I could serve and I thought I could sort of soften them up uh, to, to, to take a more 
uh, to take a stance for really looking at themselves rather than trying to fix their environment and where I, I couldn't get through. So that does happen. And it's been tough because nobody likes to fail in what they do, especially when they're so passionate about it. And it's always been wonderful moments to look also at what does that trigger in me because those people then of course become a projection screen again for me because I see something in them that I don't want to be like I don't want to be blasé I don't want to be hard-headed about something I don't want to be um yeah glib about something and and then to see that in somebody and go well that's part of me too Right, that has been helpful, even if it didn't always um, sort of rectify that relationship or help them um, to take the next step. But I, you know, but I also on the, on the plus side, so the the glass is half full. Person in me says, you never know how you touched somebody anyway, even if you might have not been the right coach for them at the time, or you tried to do something with them that they didn't understand maybe 10 years later, they get to a point where suddenly they're, they're open to it, right? And then they find a new person, a new coach, a new partner. And suddenly that is, those dots are connected and something still dropped. Yeah. Mm, or at least that's what I like to tell myself, right? <laughs> it's beautiful. I, I think that that's, and there's no way of ever knowing if that's the case, but that, that to me, even if it's true or not true, it, it can help you become more grounded in the person that you want to be and, and how you're going to show up no matter what the result is, right? I mean, that's, that's probably something we'd be coaching anyway. It's, it's more about the process than the results, but there's really, I, I have at the end of my interview, I always like to ask a couple of rapid fire questions, but there is one other thing that I wanted to touch on with you. And we've spoken a little bit about polarity and we've spoken about parts of ourselves that maybe it's tougher to have compassion for. And I know that for most of your life, you thought you were straight and then you met your soulmate and you found out your soulmate was a woman. And one of the ways that we, pin ourselves in these binaries, you're either this or you're that is with our, not only gender, but with our sexuality. And so I would love to hear how that, yeah, like, what was it like to realize that your soulmate was a woman and, and maybe just a little bit of color about how you, how you view sexuality? Yeah, so that so that was really truly one of the big tests in my life about all the things that I thought I I that, yeah well that I think I stand for and at the time when I fell in love with Olga I also thought I was standing for which was tolerance and you know everybody can live their own life and yeah and you know love can do no wrong and then I fell in love with a woman which was not according to my plan of life because I was still waiting for my prince on the white horse to uh, ride by right and then and, and then she came by and I was like this, this is not what I ordered <laughs> but I somehow there was something about the depth of our connection that made me pause and that made me stay and and actually this month we have our 20th anniversary so it's been a long time now but what I, what I noticed at the time was that, firstly, I think uh, sexuality is actually a very fluid thing. And it would be more so if it wasn't so such a taboo in society. That being said, I also think since it is a flowing spectrum, there are some people who are very clearly on one side or the other. 
right? So I, I know of people who could have sex with the other sex, but who couldn't fall in love with the other sex and vice versa. I know people who could fall in love with the other sex because they're so beautiful as human beings, but they couldn't actually have a sexual encounter with them because that just weirds them out, right? And they think that's gross. So all of that exists in the spectrum. And the, the first thing I had to learn to accept about myself was I am bisexual and I, I was struggling so hard with a not fitting into a clear cut box anymore, because I think in some ways it would have even been easier for me to find out I'm a lesbian, because at least that would have been clear. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was left with all of this 50 shades of gray stuff. And I was like, what do I do with that? Like, I don't belong anywhere where anymore. And the, the image that I had of lesbians and, you know, sort of these checkered shirts on Harley Davidson, that was not how I experienced myself. And of course, it was also very much a cliche, as I then learned over the years, but that was the only image that I had. So there was no representation for me. There was nobody for me to turn to, to understand what being in a lesbian relationship could look like. Then the next thing that I realized is I actually, and that goes back to my mother, Maria, like she is a true homophobe, right? So that part of me had a lot of opinions about being with a woman and none of them were positive. Mm. And what I realized through voice dialogue, and that was again, a very helpful tool for me at the time to explore this internal mess, um, was that this voice, um, you know, A, she was deeply grounded in a certain way of being socialized and in certain religious values. So for her, there was nothing agreeable about my choice to be a woman. She also felt it was even worse because I wasn't fully a lesbian because I could have had a different life design, right? I could have chosen to be with a man. So why would you do this on your own free will? That made it somehow more horrible. And then to, to also realize that this part actually meant well, right? So by inquiring deeper into her motives, into Mother Maria's motives, this part of me, I began to realize that she was only so fierce about her judgment because she wanted to protect me from the judgment of others that she feared I would expose myself to if I made this relationship choice. And Interestingly, I had a very pivotal experience um, with a voice dialogue facilitator where the topic was my sexuality and my relationship to Olga and Olga was witnessing this, this session. And I ended up talking to my inner mother, Maria, who said all of these horrible things about gay relationships, right? So as I was saying these things on a different chair, because as you mentioned in voice dialogue, you change physical locations when you connect with a part. I was of course still also listening to myself and going, oh my God, like I'm saying all of these terrible things. Like how, how will I ever be able to look into Olga's eyes again after her listening to this? And then when the interview, if you want, with Mother Maria was done and I was put back onto my chair, Nadia's chair. I looked at Olga and she said, I'm not afraid of her. Do you think there is one gay person on this planet who doesn't have this voice? And I said, what? You have a homophobic voice? And she's like, well, of course I have a homophobic voice because that's part of how we've been socialized. The same way as every black person has a racist voice because that's how they were socialized. Mm -hmm. So the question is not, do we have this voice? She said, the question that you need to answer for our relationship is, 
how much weight do you want to give this opinion in you? Because I'm okay with her being there, but I'm not okay with her running our relationship. And that for me was groundbreaking, right? Because again, from an awareness perspective, it, it also was this wonderful moment of realizing I can have these, these inner voices, I can have these thoughts, but that doesn't have to mean anything because at the end of the day, what matters is how I show up on the outside world is, is the actions that I choose. And, and those two are not the same thing. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I'm always struck by the, the things that we guard the most, if we can in the right space, uh, bring them out. I, I'm always struck by how it's usually received by the other person and actually becomes a point of connection. And in, in this yeah. thing where you thought Olga was going to completely run away from you and you thought, my God, I, I don't even know if I could look her in the eye after this. It, it actually brought you even closer and it it probably evoked something in her that's like, yeah, that's, I have a part like that too. So from here, Nadia, I just wanted to ask a, a couple more questions. They're more rapid fire. They don't have to be rapid fire answers, but they're just some of my go-tos that I like to ask at the end. You've already mentioned that uh, in terms of investments, you tend to look at relationships and courses, professional development, education as the number one places that you would invest money or time or energy. Is there one investment in particular that stands out as your best or most worthwhile or most life-changing investment that you've made? So actually, the, 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 you know, the third one that you um, didn't mention just now is, is health right? Mm. So my, my own body. So I would say what stands out for me is my investment in my, in my body and, and the body work that I've done over the years that has been hugely, hugely important to me. And, and the second piece is more than my education. I really would say it's my relationships, it's my friendships, and also channeling money in that direction. So, you know, one of the ways that Olga and I like to be in the world as a couple is we give quite a bit of money to people who seem to need it in that moment in time and mm -hmm. to give money without attachment and just, you know, trust other people and go, you need it right now. Right. And it's, it's like, I sometimes feel like I'm living by a lake that is full of water. So if somebody comes by who's thirsty, who, who am I to say, well, you, you can't have a cup of water. I'm sorry. Yeah. You have to pay for that. What, what I see is if we could get to a mindset where I obviously give a thirsty person a cup of water because that's what they need at that moment in time and trust if the situation is reversed, I get a cup of water or hope at least that somebody would do that for me. Then that's a really wonderful way in, in, of being in the world. So my, my primary investments, I would say, are my body and um, my relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm looking at books behind you. I, I see your own and I see uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Those are two, two of my favorites. Are there any other books that you would uh, recommend for my audience? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So one is by two colleagues here in Berlin. Their names are Bettina Rollo and Joanna Breidenbach. And they wrote a book called New Work Needs Inner Work. And they looked at how you know, this whole idea of being more agile as an organization, of having flatter hierarchies, of 
uh, you know, b- being self-organized, all of these things that are now very fashionable and a lot of organizations want to move in that direction, how essential the inner work part for that uh, for, for the success of that really is. So coming from the notion that moving away from traditional structures of dismantling structures actually means that you need to increase uh, every individual's ability to self-structure in the system. So to contain what was previously outsourced through bureaucracy and different levels of hierarchy and hold that within yourself. So that's one of the books that I really love. Um, and another book that I uh, think is amazing is The Nordic Secret by Thomas Bjorkman and Lena Andersen, um, who looked at personal development centers that were a staple part of Nordic culture um, from 1850 until about the Second World War, where young people would go uh, in large numbers, at some point, 10% of the population of some of the Nordic countries went um, to these retreat centers and basically doing what we would t- today describe as inner work, looking at values, at what what formed your, your relationship with nature, what formed your relationship with your family, your roots, where you come from, your culture. And through that lens of becoming more internally aware, more conscious, um, they actually claim that these centers are the foundation of the success the Nordic countries are still experiencing to this day. And I think they make a really good case for why, why that might actually be true and how inner work mm. also leads to greater success. Mm. So those would be a couple. Definitely sounds like they're worth checking out. Is there anything that people would be surprised to learn about you? Or is there anything that... <laughs> is i don't know like is absurd that you like to do or anything that you know like i'm thinking for myself my music taste is is way out of line compared to what you'd think based on the rest of the the way that i move through the world is there anything that comes to mind for you um so I, I would say one thing that sometimes people are surprised by is I, I, I love to read and I've become such a huge fan of science fiction. Um, so I would say 90% of the, uh, the fiction that I read is science fiction. I'm incredibly inspired by it. And, and some people seem to be surprised by that. And the other thing is that I have this really raunchy sense of humor. And, <laughs> and I know that a lot of people see me you know, sort of as this well-mannered, sometimes elegant person. And then when I crack a joke like that, they're always like, what? Where did that come from? (laughs) So there's something there about my sense of humor that I think is a very uh, private thing that only my closer friends have really been exposed to. But but I love to laugh and I do have a cheeky sense of humor, sometimes raunchy, so. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we've we've covered, I think, most of the places that I would point listeners to connect with you. But is there anything that we haven't brought into the conversation that uh, that you would point listeners to connect with you? Maybe LinkedIn or any other any other places where they could connect with your work. So LinkedIn is definitely a, a channel where they can find me. Um, you know, I always tell people that the cheapest wor- way of working with me is to actually sign up for uh, our CU Money program. The 11 week program that is all focused on our relationship to money and using money as an entry door into personal development, because at this moment in time, at least I'm still running the program and it's a great way to, uh, to work with me, to get coached by me. Um, yeah, to, to sort of pick my brain about stuff 
and I absolutely adore the work that we do in CU Money. I, I love the program. I love the people who participate. Um, yeah, so if your listeners are interested in that, I would be delighted to welcome them there. Awesome. Well, is there anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to bring into the conversation? And if not, I just have one more question for you. No, I'm, I'm very happy. I think this was a, a, for me, it was a fun conversation. So I'm, I'm happy to receive your last question. Yeah, it was an incredibly fun conversation for me. And uh, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I'd be interested to hear in your words, what does it mean to you, to Nadia, to live a meaningful life? It's hmm, a, a lovely last question. I do think at the end of the day, it goes back to the relationship thing, right? I'm, I'm very much a relationship person. There, there are a few things that make me happier than being around people, um, having deep conversations with people. And, you know, and obviously our circle of friends is very important in that regard, but I, but I even have that with strangers. So for example, when I run a CU money program, and I, I have these deep moments of connections with people that I've never talked to before in my life. Something in me just takes this giant deep breath because it gives me such hope for humanity and, and such hope for how quickly we can connect to others if we want to and if we allow that to happen. So that for me is meaningful. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really am a huge fan of your work. And it's only been a limited time that I've connected with it. But I experienced your book, Conscious You, as really a, an entire roadmap to get to introduce yourself to like the different tools that you can use to become, I don't know, call it self-actualized, but it's really just to do the inner work on yourself and to be the person that you want to be, to be the hero of your own story, as, as you say in the subtitle of the book. And as I've spoken to you, one of the things that I really admire most about you is that you have such a command in the subject matter and seemingly a mastery of what you're speaking about. And there's also a deep humility behind it. And I think it's rare to see the combination of those two things. And uh, it's just been such a privilege to have you on and to sit back and soak in your wisdom and knowledge. So uh, thanks again for taking the time. Mike, thank you so much for having me. And, uh, and I think it's wonderful that you have this podcast with your search for meaning, because I do believe one of the ways we, we learn and get inspired is to be taken along on other people's journeys, to be allowed to witness that and for you to open that door to others is, is beautiful. And I feel very honored that you asked me to be part of this. Yes. Thank you. It, that's exactly the intent of the podcast and uh, to all the listeners i hope you have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to mike's search for meaning if you enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode with your friends and leave a review i look forward to seeing you next time my friends and until then stay safe stay well and keep living with purpose peace